This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, how are you? I'm good. We're making our way through the week. We f- I feel good. I feel good. Yeah. I wanted to clarify for the audience. I was uh, proofing the episodes from Monday to Wednesday, and that sound like I'm upset. <laughs> My <laughs> voice think? is quite low. I don't know. I just want to make it clear to everybody that everything is chill. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's your um, it's your like post vacation, you know, like mellow mood. I know, yeah. but then it's different though. It's different from from our pre- prior recording that were more like a beat, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I was wondering, are people going to think that there's a beef? You know, no, it's everything is cool, people. I'm just I was a bit too mellow the other days, um, but anyway, <laughs> I think it'll be fine. All right. So we're doing infectious disease and immunology. Um, I'm starting off question 42. Okay. So it's like, it's like a page long of a question. So let's go. Mm. All right, Daphna, you're taking care of a male infant born at 37 weeks gestation with a birth weight of three kilo. This baby is a male and is now four days old. Um, this baby was admitted to the NICU yesterday with a fever of 38.6, tachypnea, and cyanosis. He was evaluated for enteroviral sepsis because of a maternal history of a viral-like illness with fever, abdominal pain, and diarrhea on the day of delivery. The infant is NPO, receiving IV fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics, and is on 40% oxygen via a hood. His um, blood pressure has been stable. His urine output is 1 ml per kilo per hour for the last 12 hours. His examination is significant for the following. The baby is febrile, has lethargy, is tachypnic. The heart rate is 190 beats per minute, 190. Cap refill is three seconds. His color appears jaundiced. He has multiple petechiae on his trunk. A CSF analysis done yesterday shows no pleocytosis with a glucose of 43 milligram per deciliter and protein of 36 milligram per deciliter. His CSF and stool PCR for enterovirus just came back and are positive. Other viral studies have returned negative. Now the lab calls you with the following results. Um, The CBC shows a white count of 9,200 cells per microliter. The differential shows um, polysegmented neutrophils of 53%, lymphocytes of 32%, monocytes 10%, eosinophils 5%. The hematocrit is 30.5%. The platelets are 39 cells, Mm. not 39,000, 39 cells per microliter. Um, AST is 240. ALT is 450. The total billy is 14.5 with a direct of 0.8. The PT um, is 34 seconds with a normal range of 12 to 14. The PTT is 50 seconds, 5-0, with a range of 23 to 37. You review the literature and find that all the following management approaches is of possible benefit to this patient, except. So you have a baby that has confirmed enterovirus, right? So they are saying 
you review the literature the, of the possible management options that I you see there, which one is not of possible benefits? Choice number one is cyclovir. Choice number two, fresh frozen plasma and PRBC transfusion. Choice number three, IVIG, immunoglobulin. Choice D, pleconarrow. Choice E, supportive management. Godspeed. <laughs> well, <clears throat> first I'll say, if I got a stem like this on the test, and, and the, most questions are not this long, but I would start by reading the question first because you can make up for yourselves many things about like what the, what the what the question is going to be but I think it will help you um, not waste time if we know like what we're looking for and they gave us the diagnosis in the stem so the other thing about this question is it's a really good review of what enteroviral sepsis looks like <laughs> that's right so definitely I would commit this one to memory both for the test but for for clinical our clinical work. Um, but this baby's sick, right? And so um, we, it doesn't say, but I imagine we have him on, uh, oh, we do, we do have him on broad spectrum antibiotics, but we're looking for things that we can um, provide that would, would give further support. So um, acyclovir, so it's an antiviral and enterovirus is a virus, um, but it's, as far as I know, not um, been used in enteroviral sepsis. Um, fresh frozen plasma and PRBCs, yeah, I think that could be helpful for this um, baby, bring up the crit a little bit, and then certainly um, he has uh, prolonged bleeding times. Um, they didn't include platelet transfusion was something else I'd also like to give to this baby. So IVIG, I'm sure you'll tell us about, um, has been studied. With a high in platelet count of 39. That's right. <laughs> oh, the terror. Um I'm sure you'll tell us about that IVIG um, has been looked at in in sepsis, in, in particular enteroviral sepsis. So um, that's something we could do. Um, uh, Placonaril, Placonaril. <laughs> I've not heard of that one before. Um, I I don't know. I don't know anything about that medication. Um, it sounds like it could be some sort of antiviral. So I'll keep I keep, I'll keep that one. Um, and then supportive management. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? It could mean so many things. So I'm going to assume we could we could do that for the baby. But I, I'm pretty sure that acyclovir is not the right answer. So I will go with A. Yeah, um, A is the correct answer. Acyclovir has no proven benefit. In enterovirus, um, the infant in the vignette obviously has enteroviral sepsis, um, and there's not a lot of there's not a ton of evidence when it comes to the management of of these infants. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have to look at the stem to under to rule out some of these um, answer choices. Mm -hmm. So, in the vignette, you would see that the baby does have uh, coagulopathy, anemia, liver disease. Um, I guess not liver disease, but liver involvement. I guess uh, is more. Appropriate. Yeah, and so for that reason, then FFP and PRBCs would make sense. Um, so so these these choices are uh, are viable options. So so choice B would be uh, considered appropriate. Um, choice E that says supportive management, like with anybody with sepsis, supportive measures like uh, making sure they don't spike fevers, cardiorespiratory support, fluid monitoring, etc. All that stuff is is very reasonable. Um, you have this this medication called pleconaril, uh, and that's an antiviral capsid-binding drug 
that inhibits the viral attach attachment to host cells. And clinical trials to demonstrate its efficacy have not been conclusive, and it's considered and it's currently being uh, considered for experimental use. So um, again, I don't know how you would have known that, but <laughs> I, I didn't. Um, same thing with uh, IVIG, where it is thought to have a beneficial effect by providing neutralizing antibodies against enterovirus, because remember, IVIG is a blood product and it's made from pooled plasma samples of potentially enterovirus, enterovirus exposed population who have already mounted uh, an adequate response. But again, the role of IVIG is, um, is, is something that's plausible and it has not been shown to have consistent benefits. I tried to review the literature. There's not much yeah. uh, new on that. Um, and then there's the role of hyperimmune IVIG, which is also being investigated. So again, another one that's like plausible. Um, but obviously, acyclovir. So, so how would you like? Right, you see those answer choices, and you're like, mm -hmm. "How was I supposed to know that?" And I guess that the moral of the story is that you were not really supposed to know that, but you were definitely supposed to know that acyclovir has right. no has no uh, role. So it's a, it's a guanosine analog, and it has demonstrated efficacy in DNA viral infections such as herpes, but does not have a role in RNA viral infection, right? So that's something that also is a nice little pearl where it reminds you that herpes is a DNA virus, but that entero um, with an R is an RNA virus. Um, it has, no, oh, yeah, and so, um, so yeah, so that's, that, that's how you would roll this out. Um, yeah, yeah really I'm thinking, you know, acyclovir is a drug that we use very commonly, right? We use it a lot um, compared to other medications. And sepsis is something we see a lot also. And so I, I would have hoped at some point in time, it would have come up that if acyclovir could help in other viral, you know, sepsis that that I would have used it. So I guess that was my thought in answering the question. But. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but that was good. I think we learned a lot. Yeah, just from the STEM. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I, I hope everybody would review it again, commit that to memory, what enteroviral uh, sepsis looks like, because um, that's another one that is commonly tested. Um, okay, on to question 45. Recombinant granulate colony stimulating factor, or RGCSF, can stimulate production of neutrophils in certain patients. Neutrophils are an important part of the body's immune defense, and their deficiency can lead to life-threatening infections. I thought it was so nice of them to teach us something in the in the question. That's Roskin uh, mind for you. The, of the following, the most appropriate scenario for use of RGCSF as a standard therapy is A, an infant born at 24 weeks gestation with a birth weight of 670 grams with early onset bacterial sepsis and an absolute neutrophil count, or an ANC, of 2,000 at birth. Um, so not neutropenic. Anyways, B, growth-restricted infant born at 26 weeks gestation with an ANC of 750 at birth who was born to a mother with severe PIH. C, an infant with Kostman syndrome. D, an infant born at 27 weeks gestation, now 15 days old, with stage 4 necrotizing enterocolitis and an ANC of 600, or E, none of the above. So now this question feels relatively easy, right? Kotzman, mm. the German, going to the Krieg, 
Krieg is K4 Kotzman, R4, um, autosomal recessive, um, I stands for infection, and the G stands for GCSF. So um, the most appropriate scenario for the use of recombinant GCSF as a standard therapy, um, right away I would go to answer C, an infant with Kostman syndrome. Yeah, so C is the right answer. So you can certainly treat Kostman syndrome, which has the severe neutropenia, um, um, recurrent infections, and then late in life, they can have some um, developmental delays, um, but can be treated with GCSF. So what about these other case scenarios? So in the first um, situation, I gave you a hint that that the baby's not actually neutropenic. So um, you probably wouldn't consider GCSF in that. In the second scenario, um, we know that the in severe PIH, we can see neutropenia and we would expect that um, to resolve in the you know, next few days. So we wouldn't use GCSF in that situation. And then um, I would imagine that most people would at least think about question answer D if you weren't sure about Kosman syndrome and now you know that Kosman syndrome is treated with GCSF um, but that um, this is a baby who's very sick and has neutropenia and so it should be noted that we have looked there have been studies done um, regarding neonates with sepsis and neutropenia um, and the use of GCSF and it has been shown to reduce mortality in some studies however, the, the bulk of studies have really been inconclusive, so it's not standard of care. And it has not um, been shown to reduce um, mortality in neck, which was the specific scenario given here. And then E, none of the above. That's a tricky answer, right? Because you could say, well, I've never used GCSF. <laughs> so uh-huh. um, then, um, you know, you, you might consider picking E, but this is this was a knowledge-based question that Kosman syndrome is treated with GCSF. Yeah, and usually the ANC that I remember is like 500. So mm-hmm. like, any, like any, anything yeah, below 500, very, very concerning. Anything above 500, you should watch. And so what was great about this question is that none of the ANC counts that they gave you mm-hmm. were below 500. So, so yeah. Ex- yeah, and that's one of the criteria for Kosman syndrome is that they have such a, a critical ANC. I mean, in general, less than 500. So. Right. Okay. Do we have time for one more? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it then. Um, We're going to question 51. Um, Daphna, you're worried that a neonate in the NICU with frequent infections may have an immune deficiency. Uh, Specifically, you are considering a disorder of B lymphocyte, B as in boy. All of the following is true about B lymphocytes, except. Choice A. Preterm infants have significantly lower B lymphocytes number compared to term infants. Choice B. The interaction of B lymphocytes with antigen leads to the production of specific antibodies. Choice C. The number of B lymphocytes peaks at three to four months of age. Choice D. They mature within the bone marrow. Choice E. X, X-linked a gamma globulinemia is caused by mutations in the Bruton tyrosine kinase that leads to a block in B lymphocyte development. Again, we're looking for the statement that is incorrect. Okay, this is like a loaded question, right? Well, um, yeah, so, so short but powerful. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Packs a punch. So, 
When it comes to preterm infants and the immune response, um, in in general, you know, they have the same number of things as as term infants. So, mm-hmm. um, I think A is incorrect that um, preterm infants have significantly lower B lymphocytes. Um, I think they have the same as term infants. Um, B is exactly what B lymphocytes do. They they can take um, uh, they look at antigens and then they produce specific antibodies. So B is a correct statement. The number of B lymphocytes peaks at three to four months of age. Um, you know, I might, I maybe I don't, I'm not sure about when exactly it peaks, but I think that could be a potentially true answer. They mature within the bone marrow. That's true. And then, gosh, I have a hard time with the immunodeficiencies, but for whatever reason, X-linked A-gamma globulinemia, I know that one. <laughs> and I know that it is, in fact, caused by mutations in the tyrosine kinase. Um, and affects B lymphocytes. So I'm going to say A, though I'm not sure about C. Oh, okay. So A, A is incorrect. So that's good. Uh, this is the, the correct answer. Um, preterm infants have similar numbers of B lymphocytes than term infants. So, so there's no difference, as you said. Um, so let's go over uh, some of the things about B lymphocytes. I think it's important to remember B-cell lymphopoiesis um, starts at around eight weeks of, of gestation. And what you have to remember is that there's a migration, right, of where the B-cells are going to be made. So around eight weeks where it begins, it starts in the liver. And we know that the B-cells are solely produced in the bone marrow. So we know that over the course of the gestation, these uh, this lymphopoiesis will move uh, out of the liver and uh, into the bone marrow. So the first, the first time you start seeing lymphopoiesis of B cells in the bone marrow is around eight to 10 weeks. So it, it's, but it's not predominantly done there. And then um, as, as the gestation progresses and you reach like 18 to 22 weeks of gestation, you see some lymphopoiesis in the liver, in the lungs, in the kidneys, but by 30 weeks of gestation, B cells are solely produced in the bone marrow. Um, so that's where uh, the B cells mature. Uh, they are responsible for humoral mediated immune response, which means that it's not really specific type of immune response that tends to be the, the duty of the T cells. And like you said, the choice, what, which choice was that? There's a choice that says, yeah, so choice B, again, it's, it's kind of tricky. They, 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 they like to phrase things a bit, a bit carefully there, but the interaction of B lymphocytes with antigen leads to production of specific antibodies. That is the job of the B cells. And these antibodies can be of various kinds. We have IgA, we have IgG, IgM, IgE, and IgD. Um, IgA are these secretory, so these are like the, the antibodies you find in, in fluid, like saliva, colostrum, respiratory secretions. Um, IgGs are the ones that bind and activate to complements, and these are the ones that easily cross through the placenta. Um, to provide passive protection to the neonate. Um, IgM also binds to complement. They're the first antibody expressed after infectivity. IgE is, as we all know from pediatric residency, uh, involved in allergic reaction. And um, IgD is an antigen receptor that is important for the regulation of B-cell development. Now, the tricky part of all these different Answer choices are what are supposed to be the levels of all these B mm-hmm. cells. Um, so 
as we've said, by 30 weeks of gestation, the pre-B cells no longer uh, detectable in the fetal liver, and the bone marrow is the exclusive site of production of B cell maturation. So interestingly enough, and this is important, so let's, let's all pay attention. At birth, the proportion of B cells is similar to that of adults, but the absolute number of B cells is significantly higher, mm. which is such a tricky mm-hmm. piece of information. Because if you asked somebody, do preterms have more or less B cells than an adult, you would be very tempted to say that adults have more because, mm-hmm. you know, but no. The proportion of B cells is similar, but the absolute number is higher. The number of B cells peaks at three to four months of age and then declines to adult level by six to seven years of life. Preterm infants have comparable levels and numbers of B cells than term infants. Now, the thing that's tricky there is that preterms have the similar proportion of B cells than adults. They have a higher absolute number of B cells than adults. They have a similar number of B cells than term. But preterms have poor antibody response to infection. So despite all this numerous B cells, their ability to respond to infection is is a bit decreased. And and maybe that's why they need to have more so that they can make up for it. To make it up, to make up for it, you're right. Um, there's a few disorders of B cells that we should be aware of. X-linked A-gamma globulinemia is one of them. And um, we have X-linked hyper-IgM syndrome. We have selective IgA deficiency. We have Job syndrome that we mentioned the other day. Mm-hmm. And we have common variable immunodeficiency. Um, you see? X-linked A-gamma globulinemia, which is the one that they mentioned in the question, is a profound immunodeficiency disease accompanied by near absence of all immunoglobulin, meaning they're missing all the different lines, like all the different IgA, uh, IgG, IgM, etc. And it's, it's caused by mutations in the Bruton tyrosine kinase, which leads to a block in B cell development and, um, and of pre-B cells and, and of the maturation process from the pre-B cells to the immature B cell stage. Um, and so this, this, prevents, this prevents the the differentiation of B cells and the production of antibodies. So yeah, this is question 51. Okay, let's squeeze in one more quick question before we close for the day. If not, we'll be behind tomorrow. So let's do 87, okay? An ELBW infant born at 24 weeks gestation and weighing 560 grams is now eight days old. The infant remains on a mechanical ventilator, requires parental nutrition via a UVC, and has not yet received any enteral nutrition. The infant develops hyperglycemia, becomes more lethargic, and has more frequent episodes of intermittent desaturations in oxygen while on the ventilator. A sepsis evaluation confirms the presence of a central line-associated bloodstream infection or CLABSI. What is the greatest single risk factor for a CLABSI in the infant in the vignette? Is it A, a birth weight, B, delay in enteral feeding, C, duration of UVC use, D, duration of parental nutrition use, or E, the postnatal age? Oh, such a such an annoying question. I know. <laughs> So Clabsy, right? Um, there's a few choices that I was not, I, I hesitated between two. Mm-hmm. Um, delay in enteral feeding, I took off. Duration of parenteral nutrition use, I took off. Postnatal age, I took off. 
Um, obviously, I'm not saying these are wrong. I'm just saying these are not the greatest single risk factor. And then I was left with birth weight and duration of UVC use. Mm. Um, and we know that the smaller the baby, the greater mm-hmm. is the risk of getting a clabsy or the, the, I guess the smaller. Yeah, that's correct. And then duration of UVC use, the longer you have an indwelling catheter, the more likely you are of getting an infection. And then and I was they're related, s- right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, they're definitely related. But then it was, for me, it was which one is, is worse. And, and so I, did, I didn't know which one to put first because it was like, <laughs> if you have a UVC for three weeks, then, then yeah, yes, that huge, bad. huge risk. risk. <laughs> um, so I picked duration of UVC use, um, unfortunately. <laughs> right. So the, so the answer is A, that birth weight is the of the choice is the greatest single risk factor for um, a CLAB scene in this infant. But the truth is that all of those are um, risk factors for um, infection. Um, a delay in enteral feeding is actually a risk factor. Duration of UVC is a risk factor. Duration of parental nutrition use. Um and I guess I'm sorry. Postnatal age is 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 also a, a risk factor. However, uh, so so all of those things, and they're interconnected, also, mm-hmm. right? Um, but um, in the studies, birth weight. Um, so the lower the birth weight and gestational age, so the earlier or the lower the gestational age, um, are the greatest risk factors for CLABSI. So um, again, they're all. A problem. They're all related, but the the correct answer um, is gestational age and birth weight. Um, and then they do expect you to have some knowledge of um, what are we doing to minimize the rate of collapses. Um, and certainly a bundled approach is best, whatever that looks like in your unit, because those care bundles may be unit specific, um, but they tend to focus on hand hygiene, optimization of insertion, um, and then early um, removal of central catheters and good infection surveillance. So um as we are advancing feeds faster, we're taking lines out sooner, those are becoming less of a, a risk factor, um, but birth weight and gestational age remain. Yeah, I guess I guess the way I was thinking about it after I realized I picked the wrong answer is try to move those knobs to the extreme, right? Try to mm-hmm. think of a, of a 300 grammer with a central line versus a four kilo baby with 12-day UVC, right? Mm-hmm. You obviously would be more afraid of the super, super tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes thinking in extreme terms when you're having to grade these things helps because in, in retrospect, I was like, should I should have picked the birth weight. All right. All okay. right, Daphna. See you tomorrow. Uh, see you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.